This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. This is the first podcast of the new year, and I have the pleasure to talk today to Mark Gordon, CIO of the Ascent Oil Fund. Mark worked as a senior portfolio manager at Janus Henderson, which, by the way, is the company that acquired Gartmore, where I used to work. He also worked for Soros and Goldman Sachs, and he's been following the oil market for many years. So, Mark, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Marcel, for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be here. Awesome. Uh, Mark, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and the Ascent Oil Fund, what it is, what you guys do, and how you do it? Sure. Um, So you mentioned a little bit about my background. I I started my career at Goldman Sachs, uh, where I began covering energy in uh, 2002. And I finished there as a portfolio manager and a managing director. And then I went to Soros Fund Management, where I I ran an energy book for three years. And um, subsequent to that, I worked for John Paul for a couple of years. And then I went to Janice Henderson, where I started what has uh, become the Ascent Oil Fund. And basically, the the premise of the fund is that uh, the market is going to move from this perception of abundance to scarcity. And when that happens, we're going to have a revaluation upwards of many of the energy equities. And um, I think that uh, the market is going to be, the general market is going to be focused on this uh, over the next few years because I think we're going to be surprised by how far and high the oil price can move and uh, will people will become concerned about inflation again and the concern uh, will arise about what oil might do to the general economy. As I'm sure you're aware, most recessions follow a large oil price rise and I think ultimately uh, that's where this is going to be leading. So now, Mark, it's a timely conversation, this one, as um, yesterday we were surprised with uh, Iranian response to the death of Soleimani, in which they hit a few American targets in Iraq. After that, oil prices went up big time, only to collapse again today. Do you think that people will start pricing in conflicts in the Middle East, or was it just a one-off event? Well, so if you look back at history, there are times when conflicts in the Middle East can have a large impact on the oil price, and there are times when conflict in the Middle East can have no impact on the oil price. And so if you look back in history to two different embargoes, we had um, an embargo with the Six-Day War, and when that happened, the oil price did exactly nothing. And then a few years later, we had an embargo with the Yom Kippur War. And in the course of three months, the oil price went up 4x. So you might say sometimes Middle East conflicts have a large impact on the oil price and sometimes they have no impact. And the large difference between the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War was that in the later situation, the Yom Kippur War, there was no spare capacity. So obviously the oil price could go up a lot. And with the Six-Day War, there was you know, plenty of spare capacity. So the embargo had no impact. 
And so when we had the ad cake uh, attacks, which were really quite striking, the main issue there is Saudi Arabia appeared to um, fix their their production facilities really rather quickly. So production was only down for a short period of time. So and and it happened in a moment when there was a perception of abundance, meaning that we had the backstop of shale and we had other spare capacity. So that's why I think the ab cake attack had little impact. But here we are, you know, only a few months later, and the market's actually, I think, tighter today than it was back in September, but still not as tight as it could be. And, and therefore, the attack on the Iranian general ha- has had a little bit of a similar impact as the Abcake attacks. But if we get through what I think is just the next six months, we're going to be in a much tighter market. And, and, and if that happens and we have another event in the Middle East, then I think the market could be very surprised with quite a, a large move in the oil price. And that will happen right after a couple of events which had you know very little impact on the oil price. So it all comes down to where we are with spare capacity, whether or not a Middle East event has a large impact or has a little impact. Interesting. And, and also something interesting that you mentioned in, in the beginning of this podcast is that changing sentiment between scarcity and abundance. Could you please talk to us about it? Sure. So, I mean, if we were to go back in, in, in time, the oil price is sort of framed by w- whether the market senses uh, has a perception of scarcity or abundance. And so I would say that from 2002 to 2014, we were living in a period of scarcity, and that's when all the, the peak oil fears sort of reared their ugly head. But then the oil price went up a lot, and we brought on you know more supply. In particular, we had shale oil, which was the most important um, uh, new source of supply, but we also had the oil sands, which grew substantially. And then we had uh, pre-salt discoveries in Brazil. So we had really three new sources of supply that were unleashed because of the high oil price. And at the same time, we also had um, this perception of peak demand, which reared its ugly head. So we went from the peak oil fears surrounding supply to peak oil fears focused on demand. And so the, the market went from scarcity to abundance and the abundance, the, the perception of abundance was mostly driven by shale and uh, uh, I think peak demand. And now I think we're about to transition to a new period of scarcity. And that's really going to happen for three, three reasons. Um, firstly, I think shale growth is slowing down and slowing down rapidly. And I think that Um, we don't have all that much more shale growth uh, left to do, maybe an incremental three to three and a half million barrels. Secondly, um, we've had now low oil prices for five plus years, and that's going to end up hurting conventional production. Conventional production, I think, is going to start to decline in 2021, and shale is then going to have to offset that. So the two together are going to create a, a supply problem. And then I think what's going to turn out Um, is, is that the, the peak demand fears are going to turn out to be greatly exaggerated. I mean, we're already seeing EV, uh, sorry, electric vehicle uh, growth is, is now running down on a global basis around 25% year over year, mainly because subsidies have been cut in China. So I think we're now transitioning from this period of abundance, abundance caused by 
mainly shale oil and the fear of EVs to a, a period of scarcity. And I think the transition period for this is the first half of uh, 2020. And that mainly comes from the fact that when you look at the official forecast, meaning the IEA or OPEC, they have a bit of a loose market in the first half of the year. And then when we get to the second half of the year, OPEC has to reverse its cuts to make the market balance. And as we go further into in, in time, I think they're going to have to um, put more and more barrels back on the market. And they don't have a huge amount of spare capacity right now. So that's why I think the transition period is the first half of 2020. We need to get through this apparent loose market and get to the tighter market in, in uh, the second half of, of 2020. And I say apparently loose market because I think that OPEC and the IEA might be exaggerating how loose the market is because when you look at their forecast, they have um, demand falling sequentially from Q4 into Q1 by about 1.1 or 1.2 million barrels a day and a normal sequential fall is uh, about 500,000 barrels a day. So they're basically telling us that we're going to have really weak demand in the first half of 2020. And now that the trade war uh, appears to be resolved, um, I think that's not very likely. So I, I think the market will actually prove to be tighter than what people think in the first half of 2020. Interesting. And uh, is there a relationship between oil prices and inventories, or is it more a sentiment? And if it is more a sentiment, uh, how do you measure it? So I think that, um, first off, what's, what's most important is not necessarily the level of inventories, but the, uh, the change in inventories or the direction in which inventories are, are moving. But I think that that's also framed by the general price regime. And so what I like to point out to people is that when you look at oil in the fourth quarter of 1998, it was $10.35. And then you go and look at the third quarter of 2008, it was $147.27. And in both those two periods, you know, one, the oil price was 14 times higher than the other. On a days of forward demand basis, inventory was the same. So inventory doesn't necessarily control price at any given moment. We can have regime shifts. And then when you enter a new regime on a sort of weekly basis or a monthly basis, the changes in inventory will move the price. But um, it's perception of abundance or scarcity, which can move the price, even with inventory being the same. I mean, if you go back and you looked at um, us coming out of the great financial crisis in 2009, inventory grew that whole year while the price went up. And that was because people still thought we were in a period of scarcity. But um, um, and, and so inventory didn't really have an impact on the price. Got it. Well, now that we talked about the time from 2003 to 2008, energy stocks did really well. Correct. But the world seems to never run out of oil. When, when everyone expected the world to run out, they found a massive oil field in Kazakhstan. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, then they found the pre-salting fields in Brazil, the shale in the US. Do you think that we are not going to find anything big enough over the next few years? And what are you seeing in the world in terms of new exploration projects? Well, so there's one issue that we're going to have, which is obviously compounding. So, you know, you go back to 2003 to 2008, and oil demand was around, it was in the low 80 million barrels a day, and we're at 100 today. So the amount of oil you have to find today 
to balance the market is a lot more than what you needed back then. And that's just a general issue with, with growth in a finite commodity. Now, additionally, um, we've had a real long run now of poor exploration success. And so the last couple of years have actually been the years where we found the least amount of oil um, globally. And, and so if I, if I look back over the last decade and I think of conventional discoveries, putting aside the shale for just one second, I think the only material conventional discovery, you know, at least in the last five years is Guiana, Suriname. And there they've found about 6 billion barrels thus far. Um, maybe that's going to grow to 12 billion barrels. But to put that in context, we use 36 billion barrels in a year. Now, we have found quite a lot of shale over that time frame. And uh, I, I think we found about 70 billion barrels of, of shale. Um, but again, putting that in context of the globe, we use 36 billion barrels of oil a year. So, you know, if, if you, the amount of shale that we found is basically two years of, of oil um, consumption. But perhaps the more relevant way to look at it is it's 20 years of, of um, oil production at 10 million barrels a day. So it's quite relevant from, from that perspective. But you, you can sort of play with these numbers um, however you want and uh, um, make it seem big or small. But from a conventional perspective, we have not been finding the amount of oil that we use for decades now. In fact, I think you could go back to uh, um, 1981 when production started to outpace discoveries. Well, you mentioned Shale now. I believe you know that famous investors like uh, David Einhorn and Jim Channels are very critical of uh, U.S. shale um, oil and gas companies. What are your views on shale companies? Yeah, well, so maybe Einhorn and Channels don't like shale companies, but uh, uh, Exxon and Chevron do. I mean, a large part of Exxon and Chevron's CapEx is now being spent on shale. And so these are actually the people that know a lot about oil and gas. And uh, I think they're, they're voting with the dollars they spend. Now, I think it's very fair to say that or to note that shale has not produced a, any free cash flow since it's been discovered. But I think you need to look at this in, in context. I mean, first off, we began to make shale work at, in the $100 oil world. And when that happened, um, I think everyone was grateful we found it because if we hadn't found shale, we would already have I'm sure $200 oil or, or higher. I mean, basically shale prevented us from having a supply problem. I mean, it's already 8.5 million barrels a day. If you didn't have that 8.5 million barrels a day, you would have had to have killed a lot of demand. And when given how inelastic uh, um, demand is to price, you would have needed a very, very high uh, oil price to kill that uh, amount of demand. So when shale was discovered, I mean, in, in earnest, let's say 2010, I mean, we were working on shale much before that, but shale oil sort of began to take off uh, th then. That, that was a period when everyone thought the oil price was going to go a lot higher. And so the CEOs of all these companies um, were, bring, were bringing on production and they weren't so focused on uh, cash flow because they were anticipating the oil price to go higher. If you had spoken to any Buddy in the market in 2014 and told them that these shale companies could break even on a cash flow basis at $50 oil, everyone would have told you you were crazy. Um, so the surprise was when the price fell, um, they managed to take their cost structures down a lot. And I think 
The, the other surprise is going to be that if the oil price ever goes back up to triple digits, which I think it will over the next few years, we're going to be surprised by how good businesses the, these are. And it's, they're going to produce a whole bunch of free cash flow when, when oil goes up because the cost structure has come down so much. If you think of the oil business, it's really about spending money and getting gain as much oil as quickly as possible. And so from that perspective, Shale really has the best business model out there because they get the oil as quickly as possible. Now, Shale's criticized for having these rapid declines, but you would always choose to get as much oil as quickly as possible. So the real problem with shale is not the decline curve, it's the fact that the amount of oil you get per well is low. So if you were to compare shale to an offshore project, the offshore project, you know, you might spend money and not see anything for five years, and then you're going to get a, a wall of cash for, you know, the next 20 or something. And the wall of cash is great, but you would always prefer to get that oil uh, sooner. Um, and, and the offshore projects are only superior to shale because typically the, the, each well there will produce a, an order of magnitude more oil than any, any shale well. Got it. So what level of growth can we expect from the major shale basins? Like Eagle Ford, Bacon, and, and the Permian. Yeah, well, so this is part of the reason why I think we're at an inflection point um, in U.S. oil production growth, because I don't think the Bakken or the Eagle Ford are really going to show very much growth at all going forward. And I think that we're going to just rely upon the Permian for, for growth. And that's different than in the past. I mean, in the past, you had the Bakken, the Eagle Ford, the Niobrara. It was all growing. And also in the, in the past, um, at least the last past five years, We had the Gulf of Mexico growing. And so I think when you get to the back of this coming year, the Gulf of Mexico is not going to be growing because that's uh, conventional oil and we've you know, had large projects come on there. And I think the Bakken's not going to be growing. The Eagleford's not going to be growing, or at least not growing much. And all of the, the growth will then become dependent upon the Permian. And, and so another issue is that even the Permian players have decided or discovered that their resource is smaller than what they had originally thought. And that happened over the course of the last two years. I mean, you can go and look at Parsley's slide deck, for example, and you'll see that they've decided to space their wells you know, twice as wide as what they were doing two years ago. Well, so what, what that means is they have half as many locations, and so uh, effectively the resource is smaller, although each well now will produce more than what it was modeled to produce two years ago because of the improved fracking technology. Despite that, you know, the resource is still smaller. And so, you know, now that the, these companies have a bounded uh, resource, there's no reason for them to grow as fast as possible uh, because if, if you can only double production, say, you wouldn't want to grow at 25% a year because you'd be done in three years. It makes a lot more sense to grow at 12% a year or something like that. And so we might see 400, 500,000 barrels a day come out of the Permian and maybe 100,000 come out of everything else. So I think that, you know, compared to the past, we're going to have much lower growth coming from America. And, and that's going to clearly impact global oil balances. Sure. Are, are consensus estimates of the Permian supply too high? Well, I think consensus estimates, and when I say consensus now, I mean, consensus estimates have actually come down a lot in the last 
five months, I would say. But I, I, I think that the consensus is probably governed by uh, OPEC and the IEA. And, you know, OPEC's at 1.5 million barrels a day of, um, of supply growth from the U.S. And uh, the IEA's lower. They're, I think, 1.1. But I think we're going to do, you know, much, much less than that. I mean, it's probably going to depend upon the price, but, but uh, we could come in, you know, 700, 500, 600, 700, 800,000 barrels a day. So, so to answer your question, yes, consensus estimates are too high. And I think that part of this inflection point that we were talking about is going to be caused by, by uh, a recognition that the U.S. is, is growing more, more slowly. Now, I'm, I've got a few questions from, uh, for you from some of my followers on Twitter. Would it be okay if I fire a few at you? Sure. Cool. So the first one is, uh, why are oil and gas stocks underperforming? forming the S&P when the WTI is already above $60? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is a little bit of a mystery. And I remember when I started my career, you know, back in 1999 at Goldman Sachs, I was on the Internet Tollkeeper Fund. And every single day, um, the Internet stocks would all go up <laughs> and we'd all look at each other and we didn't understand it, but we thought it was great and it was a lot of fun. And the last year has been the mere opposite of that. So what I'm trying to say is that there's an element of um, irrationality to what's going on. And I've been doing this close to 20 years, and I've never seen anything more irrational than what we're experiencing with the oil and gas stocks and what happened in, in, in 2019. If, if you had told me at the beginning of the year that the oil price would be up you know, 30 plus percent and that the U.S. stock market would be up high 20s, I would have told you that the EMP stocks in particular would have been up 50%. And the XOP last year was was down about 9.9%. So there's quite a large gap there. So the first way to answer it is I'd say it's really irrational. But then the second way I would answer it would be to say that this is an example of George Soros's reflexivity. And what he means by that is he means that price doesn't reflect reality, but price changes reality. And so here, uh, with the example of the EMP companies, by having all their valuations fall, what that effectively does is it forces them to stop growing because now it makes a lot more sense for them to um, buy back their shares or perhaps spend some of their free cash flow on paying down debt. Um, and so, and it's also forced discipline on all these companies, uh, making them show a free cash flow yield. So I think part of the reason the stocks fell, the part that's not the irrational part, is that this is the market basically telling the industry to, to cut off production. And so the corollary of that is that if we get to a, a situation where we have a shortage and there's scarcity in the market, we're going to need more production. And in that scenario, I think the stocks can do the exact opposite because the market's going to give them the signal that, that they need to grow again. And so we could go from really low multiples to really high multiples because that will inspire growth. And so, you know, I think all is not lost. I think this massive discrepancy between the oil price and the oil stocks could easily close and it could go in the other direction. And in fact, I think that's the most likely outcome. And that's why I think the EMP sector is particularly compelling right now. Some people would say that these stocks fell 
because of concerns around uh, carbon and uh, global warming, but I don't think that's the case, actually. I mean, if you look at the refinery stocks, they're equally as exposed to that um, in a way, and their valuations haven't fallen. So I don't think that's what's driving the EMP stocks. I think it's, you know, one, irrationality, and two, I think it's just the market sending the message to turn off production. Got it. What sites or information sources do you check on a regular basis? Um, well, so like everyone who, who does this, I think that we all have to look at the IEA and the EIA and the OPEC reports. I think that's basically what creates you know someone who focuses on oil's reality. So that's probably the, the primary sources that I look at. I use Energy Intelligence. They're a news service and they have really great news coverage of the um, oil and gas industry. And I think they probably have the best news coverage of the oil and gas industry. And I, um, so I, I find that a critical tool. Um, in the last nine months, I've been using Twitter, actually, um, which sort of surprised me. I started using it because I had to pay attention to the president's tweets because uh, they, they ended up affecting my daily life. And, but, but, but the uh, um, amazing thing is that for the oil and gas space in particular, there's quite a lot of you know, reporters or geologists or people who are focused on it who, who tweet. And often if something's happening with oil, I'll look at Bloomberg and try and figure out what's going on. And if uh, I can't figure it out, out from Bloomberg, I'll look at Twitter and I might find uh, my answer. And then, you know, I pay various consultants for their, their work and they're all helpful and useful. Um, so those are the main sources I use. Brilliant. Now, the, the U.S. frack spreads were down around 30% last year. Uh, I mean, we could see no growth at all, at least in the first half of 2020. Since the U.S. is pretty much the only source of growth, would that be the turning point from the age of abundancy to the age of scarcity? Well, so this year, I would say there's three sources of growth. The first one, let's focus on the conventional side. So we're, we're having two large projects come on that were sanctioned in the $100 oil world. And these are the last large projects to come on from that period. And, and that's the uh, Johan Severdrop field in Norway. And then uh, in addition to that, Brazil is, well, has ramped in the last few months a substantial amount of pr production. But in the case of Norway and Brazil, these were both things that were sanctioned seven plus years ago, and they're coming on now, and that's not going to repeat. So once they're on, and in, in the case of uh, Brazil, it's fully ramped, and Norway, it's I think about 85% ramped right now. But once they're up, that's that will not repeat, and that's one of the reasons why um, the balances in 2021 are going to look a lot uh, tighter. And then, uh, as you, you mentioned, the frac spread count is down a lot. In fact, just in the last couple of weeks of uh, December, it you know, took another n nosedive. So if you look from July to the end of the year, it fell 41%. And so I, I think you're right. I don't think we're going to see any sequential growth from America in the first uh, quarter of the year. And so you combine what's going on with tight oil along with the fact that we're having the last a last gasp of production from conventional. And I think that those two combined are what is going to um, move us from abundance to scarcity. I think also on the demand side, there's a, a, an issue too, which is the trade war last year. I think it impacted oil more than people uh, uh, recognize. If you look at 
trade on a global basis going back to 1998, we had the fourth worst year for trade, and we had the 11th worst year for GDP. So uh, trade was much more impacted last year. Uh, Trade growth was much more impacted last year than GDP growth. And of course, oil's correlation to trade growth is larger than it is to GDP growth. So I think that's why uh, oil got hit the most from the China-US trade war. And But that's really cyclical. And if this phase one trade deals really going to get signed, I think, next week. Um, I think that will uh, abate many of the demand concerns. And as I pointed out earlier in this conversation, um, I think the IEA and OPEC's demand numbers for the first half of the year are much too low. And they they came out with those forecasts before we knew that we had sort of this uh, trade truce. What could be the trigger for consolidation in the industry, specifically in the Permian Basin? Well, I mean, we're already beginning to see a consolidation there. Um, I think that companies recognize that, that makes sense. Uh, you're able to eliminate G&A. And the amazing thing is that with the valuations so low, G&A is a much larger percentage, you know, a multiple than you might think. Um, so that would be one reason to, 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 uh, to do it. And, and uh, um, also, it's what is best for an E&P company is to have contiguous acreage. And so if you can have mergers that create large contiguous acreage blocks, I mean, that lowers costs. But I think you're more likely to see some of the small companies merge with each other in an all-stock deal than you are likely to see them get taken out you know, for cash or something, because I think most CEOs think they're stocks are way, way undervalued. And so they would only want to take paper in a company that's equally undervalued. Uh, do you have concerns about the potential disruptors to the sector, uh, like electric uh, vehicles? And, and do you see electric vehicles taking off? Yeah, well, so I think that the electric vehicle story is sort of surprisingly a really bullish story for the oil sector. In fact, I think there's almost nothing more bullish, and that might be counterintuitive, but uh, hear, hear me out. I think that what has happened is the whole industry is concerned about peak demand. And because it's concerned about peak demand, the industry is not investing the way they, the way they should. And so fears of the electric car have forced the industry to cut back on capital spending. And I think that the hit to supply from that lack of capital spending is going to be much greater than the hit to demand from the EV. Now, in this last year, EVs, you know, they hurt oil demand by about 40,000 barrels a day on a market of 100 million barrels a day. So really, their impact was negligible. You couldn't even see it. So concerns around the EV all have to do with concerns in the future. And the assumption is the EV is going to hockey stick up in, in demand. And this is the general perception. And it's happening while EV sales this moment are down 26% year over year. So the, the, the problem uh, with EV sales right now is uh, China cuts their subsidies, and so uh, uh, it's falling dramatically there. In America, both uh, Tesla and GM are now out of 
uh, subsidies. So, so that's having an impact in, in America. And so the only place where EV sales are growing right now are, are in, in Europe. And so it's kind of a bit difficult to imagine this hockey stick when you have negative um, EV sales today. But more important, I think that the mistake in projection comes from the fact that when people analyze EVs, a lot of them think that battery technology is going to follow Moore's law. And that's just the wrong uh, analogy. And, and the reason it's the wrong analogy is because a battery is not like a semiconductor. A battery is limited by its physicality. And so like all energy uh, production, you start off with large uh, incremental efficiency gains, and then over time you get diminishing marginal return. And so I think we're, we're beginning to see those diminishing marginal returns in uh, battery technology. In fact, uh, Columbia University's energy Policy Institute. I think I got that title approximately correct. Um, they put out a study uh, just last month looking. It's a study looking at studies of EVs, and they show that um, in the last year, um, people uh, forecasters uh, believe that battery price improvements the, the, uh, have begun to uh, um, wane, and so right now. You know, battery batteries are uh, not cost competitive with EVs. They're about 75 to 100% more expensive. So that needs to fall to make this compelling to the consumer. And then there's just other issues, which, you know, are, are obvious. Kind of uh, the range issue is one. Um, the fact that you have to recharge the cars um, and, and often recharge them for multiple hours, that's a, a, another problem. And then there's... And the issue that batteries deteriorate over time, just the way your iPhone, you got to charge more frequently um, as it gets older. And the same, same thing happens with cars. And so what that means is that your residual value um, is, is lower. And so there's a lot of reasons why um, this is an inferior product. I mean, I, I will give it to EVs. They have superior acceleration, but I think that's perhaps one of the only um, positives and the negatives are, you know, quite uh, large. So I think that the market has overestimated how quickly EVs will come. And the main reason for this overestimation has been because it seemed like governments would, would drive this transition. But the, the problem is government-driven transitions never really work. And if you really want to have an energy transition to EVs, it needs to be driven by the market or higher prices. And so for EVs to really take off, I think what ha has to happen is the oil price needs to double. And that's when we'll see them uh, take off because then, you know, you will have a superior, you know, economic offering and maybe some of the other negatives EVs will be offset by uh, the, the uh, better relative cost. Sure. Do you foresee an explosion in consumption from countries like Indonesia, India, uh, Vietnam, etc.? Well, I mean, a lot of analysts talk about this uh, S-curve as these uh, company, uh, countries' uh, GDP uh, increases. And, you know, as that happens, there's sort of an explosion in uh, demand growth. We saw it in Korea. We saw it in China. I mean, we should see it in India and some of the other com uh, countries that you mentioned. But um, even if that doesn't happen, I think what's... Uh, 
important to recognize. If you go back to year 2000 to 2008, we had very strong uh, oil demand growth because China was driving that at the time. But uh, uh, now, I mean, because of compounding, you know, even if we have less demand growth on a percentage basis, the base is higher. And really what matters the most is the absolute demand growth because that's what needs to be met with oil projects and oil projects, um, you know, it's still as difficult today to bring on a million barrels from conventional production as it was, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and, and so I think that demand is going to be strong and surprise to the upside, uh, mostly because um, people overestimate the impact of EVs on demand. And uh, so, so, so I, I think the demand weakness that we have seen recently is all cyclical. And, and when you look at EVs, this is really the only place where people question oil demand, and that's about, you know, the light vehicle market's about 25% of, of uh, oil demand. So there's no, no one's concerned about air traffic or air airline oil demand or shipping oil demand or oil demand for chemicals. Um, so I, I think one of the great mistakes in analyzing the oil market right now is being uh, pessimistic on long-term demand. Got it. Uh, Mark, I, I shouldn't have asked you this before, but uh, how are you playing the sector today? Where, where do you find the most value? Is it a downstream, uh, upstream, or companies that provide services to, to the oil sector or, or all of the above? Well, so I think the most value to be found is in um, E&P companies that have a long-lived resource base. And the reason I think a long-lived resource base is important is because I think that when we have scarcity, that's going to get valued more richly. So I think the Permian is you know, a great place to find companies. The Canadian oil sands are another you know, great place to find companies. They have even longer-lived uh, uh, resource base. And then there's, you know, uh, certain specific, uh, you know, situations that I think are overlooked by the market. But I think when you look at the oil field service sector, the problem with that is it's greatly commodified. And historically, um, about half the earnings in the sector came from the offshore. And I don't see that coming back anytime soon. And onshore is extremely commodified. And, you know, if you, if you believe, as I do, that U.S. production is going to grow more slowly than consensus, uh, you don't want to own oil field service companies. So I focus on the E&P companies. I think that if they have a good resource, they have something that has a sustainable competitive advantage. And I like to own E&P companies with long-lived resources who focus on oil as opposed to natural gas production. Brilliant. Mark, uh, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your views with us. I believe it was extremely insightful and interesting, and it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Great. Thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to, to talk. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support, and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.